Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our series on To Live, Zane, that To Live is Christ, and it's in the book of Philippians, so open your Bibles up if you have them to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11 today, and just remembering how we got here, of course, this statement that the Apostle Paul makes, for me, whoa, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain, and that is just a critical and a key thing to understand is that to live is supposed to be a focus upon Christ for us as believers, understanding that when our life comes to an end, there is nothing but gain as we enter into eternity because of the work of Christ and the promises he's given us as believers. So the first call that the Apostle Paul gives us in Philippians 1.27 to help us to live Christ is to live uh, lives worthy of the gospel so to live lives that are set apart and and um, sacrificial in the same way that christ sacrificed and gave for us and then last week we talked about this call to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves everyone should look uh, not to his own interests but rather to the interests of others that we were called to a life of unity and humility and that is how we are supposed to be living christ especially amongst the fellowship of believers now we should be treating outsiders the same way but especially amongst the fellowship of believers we should be living lives of unity and humility and so chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 begins to explain to us or give us a foundation for this lifestyle of unity and this lifestyle of humility and it is to be found in Jesus himself. Because in, in uh, verse 5, remember the end of last week, we had this one statement from Paul. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. In other words, our example, example for, I, I start slurring words together, I'm so excited. Our example for unity and humility is the attitude that Jesus had. And so we're going to spend some time today in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, 11, seeing the attitude of Jesus. So if you will, open up your Bibles or scroll uh, to God's Word. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And let's look through that in its entirety first, and then bit by bit as we move forward. So Paul writes this to the church in Philippi and to us. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross." For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So verse 5, Paul begins to tell us, have the same, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And this is not some sort of new thing that Paul is making up and reading back into the life of Jesus, this call for unity and humility and service to others. We actually can see this being taught by Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 and following, Jesus uh, says some important things to his disciples. It says that he called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we see in Jesus this example, first and foremost, he taught it out of his own mouth. If you want to lead, you want to be significant, you must serve. And I have come to serve. In fact, I've come to give my life. In John chapter 13, verses 14 through 16, it details uh, Jesus' teaching regarding what he had done just prior to this. And he had uh, stripped down to his undergarments, essentially. He wrapped a towel around his waist and, and took the lowest form of servanthood in the life of any Jewish household. And he washed the feet of all of his disciples. In fact, by washing their feet, he was assuming a role that was outside of the expectations for even a Jewish slave. The washing of feet was usually reserved for a Gentile slave because it was such a despicable job. And Jesus, the master, the son of God incarnate, washes his disciples' feet, assuming the lowliest of positions, the most despicable of acts. And then he says this to him, so if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. We can see Jesus, by his very actions, living out this command that Paul gives the church in Philippi. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important, not of equal value, but as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest. In other words, don't wash your own feet, but wash the feet of others like your Savior did. And so we see it in the life of Jesus, and we see him teaching the disciples. Matthew 23, 11 and 12, Jesus says this to the disciples and to us, the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So over and over again in the teachings of Jesus, we, we see the foundation for what the Apostle Paul is calling the church of Philippi and all of us too, to have this attitude that Jesus himself had, where we put everyone else first in the body of Christ, where we treat others as more important than ourselves, not of the same value, but more important and we willingly give of our own needs and pride in order to serve one another in the body of Christ. Now, I, I do want to reiterate, in Paul's writing this to the church of Philippi, he's telling them this is how the church should be behaving toward one another. Jesus said that the world will know that you're my disciples by your love one for another. And Paul is detailing what that love should look like. Now, that doesn't mean that we walk out the door and pe treat people like trash. But what it means is this life of complete sacrifice should happen here. And then it trickles out into our community as we begin to learn to live this lifestyle of sacrifice and giving. And so we end up seeing that humility is not something that Paul is just pulling out of thin air, but real humility is rooted in the character of Christ. We see it in him, and then we try and live like he did. We try and follow his example. We seek to give of ourselves like he gave of himself. And so Paul gives us here in this little passage, verses 6 through 11, one of the big, big uh, statements of Christology in the Christian church. Christology, you might wonder, well, it's already up there. It's the study of Christ. And so we see who he is and we understand his nature as we look more deeply into him. And so Paul is going to tell us, live like Jesus. And now let me tell you a little bit more about this savior who came to give his life for you. So in this great Christological statement, after telling us to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, Paul begins to tell us exactly what that attitude was. And he describes it this way. Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Now, we can read this and it starts getting a little 
confusing potentially, a little muddy as we, we read and go, okay, wait, he existed in the form of God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited or held on to. That's what the English Standard Version, instead of exploited, it says equality with God, something to be grasped. So let's, let's look at those phrases, those, those, uh, those four different phrases, those four different words, a little bit more in detail. First, existing in the form of God. The word that is used for form is the Greek word morphe. And uh, some of you guys, maybe you've watched The Matrix, you know, you know Morpheus, what a great name. It means form. Uh, so, but he existed in the form of God. And the word morphe, form, it doesn't mean that Jesus just kind of looked like a god. Okay, so it, it's not some statement that just says, well, there was a God over here, God the Father, and then there was God the Son, and they kind of looked alike. They were, they were similar. No, we, we don't have two gods. We have to understand that, first of all, Scripture teaches very clearly there is one God expressing himself in three persons, or existing, actually, in three persons. But each of those persons is not a lesser little part of God. It's like, if you and I, we, we have this mindset, if we were to divide, our, to divide ourselves into three different people, we'd have like three little mini-me's, right? And they'd all be a little different, you know? And, and so that's not what this is talking about. It, it is that God the Father is completely God. God the Son is completely God. The word form, morphe, means they were of the same essence or being. And so when you talk about being of the same essence or being, you're saying that the stuff that makes up God is the stuff that makes up God the Father, is the same stuff that makes up God the Son, is the same stuff that makes up God the Holy Spirit. Each person of the Trinity has all the stuff, and yet each is distinct in who they are. And if you sit there and go, I don't understand, welcome to the Trinity. It's clearly taught in Scripture. It's clearly expressed that there is one God in three persons, all the same God, and yet all completely God in each and every one of their persons. And so if you're a little, I don't quite get it, it's okay. If you can completely wrap your mind around God, you have a God that's far too small to be worth worshiping. But instead, when we come to God and we say, you are God, you are real, and everything you've revealed about yourself, I believe because I believe you to be the one true God. I see the evidence in Scripture. I see the evidence in creation and my own life. And so if you say that you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that each is completely God, and equal in being, and equal in essence, I don't understand how that works, but okay. Okay, I'll try and keep wrapping my head around it. But for now, I'll take it in faith. Now, just so you understand, this discussion about the Trinity and how they interrelate and how is the, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, how are they the same? How are they different? This has been a discussion that has been part of Christian history since the 200s and the 300s and the 400s and the 500s. And people have been burned for disagreeing. People have been killed for disagreeing. And on Twitter, you can get flamed today if you still can't get it right. I mean, there are, there are still Twitter wars today about the Trinity. Uh, right, right now, I'm following one. It's going to be, some probably are going to record it in church history, you know, is the great Twitter council of 2021, uh, you know, where, where there's just this heated discussion about the relationship of the Son and the Father. And really what it comes down to is we don't all understand in fact, we don't think anybody really gets it completely. So what we have to do is rest on what Scripture says specifically. And what does Scripture say here? Jesus existed in the same substance and essence as the Father and as the Holy Spirit. And so there is an equality there. But here's what Paul goes on to say. Though Jesus existed as one with the Father, and though he has existed with the Father from the very beginning of eternity, before the world ever existed, there was never a time when Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was not. He has always been the begotten Son of the Father from 
eternity past to eternity forward. It's not like someday they'll recombine and be one God. They have always been one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who will always be one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus is one with the Father, always existing with the Father, always equal with the Father, and yet did not consider that equality as something to be exploited or grasped. And so the word equality is is a, a little bit different because he is equal with the Father in being but does not pursue equality with the Father in role. It is the same as when we look out across the room, each and every one of us are equal as people. Right, we have the same being, the same essence. We are people in the same way all across the room, but each of us has unique and distinct roles in our culture and society. And guess what? Some of your jobs I could not do. In fact, many of your jobs I could not do. If it requires math or finance, I'm toast. There is no way I am doing your job. And and. The truth is, is that there are days where you would not want my job either. So you think, you, you just talk for 45 minutes once a week. That's got to be so easy. Well, some weeks it is. And then some weeks there's counseling. Counseling. Let me tell you about counseling. If, if I've ever counseled with you, I love you. But man, it can be draining to just be bearing one another's burdens. And you might think, well, I can handle that. We just sit around, drink a few Cokes or a few cups of coffee, and then we'd be off. And Sometimes it's that beautiful, and sometimes it's not so much. And those of you who've done counseling, you understand, but but we all have different roles. We are equal in being, but we have different roles. Now, we have this move in culture where not only should we recognize our equality in being, but everybody's role should be equal. Well, that's not the way life works. It's not the way that authority, it's not the way that God has ordained this world. And Jesus, though he was equal with the Father in being and essence, did not consider having a role that was equal with the Father as being necessary. So instead of saying, well, I'll fight you for who gets to be in charge, Jesus assumed the role of son, of submission, of obedience to the Father. Now, the word grasp, this picture of, of not his uh, equality with, with God, not something that was worth being grasped or exploited. We, we see it expressed here in, in Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 14, 36, Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So we see here and all throughout the Gospels, Jesus willingly submitting himself, though equal in essence and power and being to the Father, willingly submitting himself in relational role to the will of the Father. And we see it happen over and over again throughout the Gospels. And and so Jesus did not say, hey, I'm going to fight you for who's in charge, but willingly assume this role of submission to the Father according to to the the perfect will of God in order to do the work that was established for him. And he submits to it and doesn't consider being like the Father something to be held onto or grasped. And that word grasped is kind of like a picture of white knuckle holding on to something, being unwilling of letting go. Because you know it's what you deserve. Now when we see and we're told by Paul, have the same attitude as that of Jesus. In our relationship with other believers, we should be like Jesus. Who was equal with God the Father and yet relinquished his equality in order to be submissive or obedient to the will of the Father in order to accomplish the work of salvation for mankind. If he is willing to give up all the rights and privileges of being God in order to save us, what might we be willing to do in order to serve one another? Or we might be a little bit more like Adam and Eve. 
Adam and Eve were standing there in the garden, right in front of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God had commanded them not to eat of it. And they're, they're, they're considering. And then the serpent enters in, and he says this. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. There was this statement, this lie from Satan that says, you'll be equal to God. Do you know what Adam and Eve did? They reach up and they grasp the fruit and they partook of it. They ate it. And they died that day. And they rebelled against God because they wanted to hold on to or they wanted to be equal in authority and power to Him. You see the, these two different pictures. One, Adam and Eve wanting to be equal to God. And Jesus, who did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. But instead, though it was what he deserved and it was what was right, he let it go willingly. So we see this picture of Jesus, this beautiful, amazing picture of Jesus who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But instead, Scripture tells us, instead, he emptied himself, assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, we'll pause right there. Let's look at these phrases, emptied himself. Now, you might think of emptying himself and not being willing to pursue equality with the Father as some sort of, well, so did he just like, just become a dude then? Did he give up everything and just become a person? No, what, what this word really means, is emptied himself, is that he assumed a new role in the creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Though he was rich, how rich was he? Equal with God. All of the rights and privileges of eternity were his to hold on to. He had wealth beyond measure, and we're not talking about coin. We're not talking about stacks. We are talking about the God of creation. It's all his. Though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. This is the picture of how Jesus served. This is how the picture of how Jesus emptied himself. He gave up what was rightfully his in power and authority, and he set it aside. He poured himself out. So that you could know the riches of eternity. Now it says he emptied himself. What's unique about this thought? He emptied himself. Who emptied Jesus? Himself. He did. It was not an act that was forced upon him. He was not coerced. The, God the Father didn't look at the Son and go, Alright, so you know, I mean, if you really want to do this right... You're going to have to do something different here. You're going to have to take the form of a servant. You're going to have to give up the privileges of heaven. No, it was the Son Himself who saw the will of the Father, who emptied Himself. He willingly gave up Himself for us. Now, you bring it down into church life. I shouldn't have to guilt you into serving one another. We shouldn't have to shame one another into doing the right thing. This should be a choice of the will to serve like Christ did. And he assumed the form of a servant. Now remember the word form? It's the same word in the Greek as we talked about earlier. He was, uh, he was in the form of God. He had the same essence. He had the same being as the Father. It says the form of a servant here is he assumed the essence or the being 
of a servant. There was this complete change in his role from one of equality with the Father to one of servanthood for all of mankind. Now, Strong's uh, Dictionary uh, or Greek lexicon says that this word servant, it is one who gives himself up to another's will. One who, who surrenders himself or herself to the desires or plans of another. We're called to this life of submission to each other, of giving of ourselves. I think, I think so many of us, we're fighting to hold on to what is rightfully ours. We're fighting to hold on to our rights and privileges, and we find ourselves not only losing those things, but also starving to death alone spiritually. And the church that we're supposed to be is one where we all let go of the things that we deserve, the things that should be ours, and give of those things and give of ourselves to others in order to lift them up. And guess what? When we're all giving and sharing, everyone's needs are fulfilled and we find fulfillment as we live out the Christian life in faithfulness. It says he emptied himself, he gave himself up to being a servant, assuming the essence or the being of servanthood, and he was in the likeness of humanity. Now, some have misinterpreted this and, and, and taken it to see that Jesus was just pretending to be human, and that's not what it means here. This word likeness, it, it, it really is this picture of he is exactly the same in how he looks and yet has a distinctive difference. And we know as we look at the totality of Scripture that Jesus is exactly the same. He's just perfectly human like us in every necessary aspect to achieve our salvation. But he was without a sin nature. He was without that very thing that lives deep within us, that drives us to, to rebel, to choose wrong to sin day after day. Jesus did not have a sin nature. He was born perfectly. So he was in the same likeness as us. He was fully human in every way that was necessary. But there was something unique about him. He was perfect and sinless. And so we have this, this beautiful Savior who experienced life just like us. We, in uh, 1829, we've been watching The Chosen. If you haven't seen it, it's, a, it's an interesting television show where they take some scriptures and they kind of flesh it out and use historical fact and a little bit of fictional uh, license in order to flesh out the Gospels and, and fill out the story of Jesus. And this last Friday night, we were sitting and watching together and it was just this, this uh, really cool uh, deal where, where Jesus is out camping by himself, doing woodworking, uh, and, and, and had to start a fire. And you can picture what you would do if you were the Son of God incarnate. At, at least maybe what I would do is, I am not going to do what the, 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 the movie shows or the pit show shows, and he's rubbing a stick on and doing the friction fire starter, you know, to get the little bit of a, an ember going and then blowing on it. And so, I would be like, fire, right? I mean, wouldn't you? But Jesus was human. He experienced life just like you and I. All of his miracles had meaning and purpose. They were not self-serving. They were not so that he could walk through the crowd and go, I really am great, aren't I? But instead, they were always to prove that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, who had come as the ransom for all of mankind. Every miracle served the purpose of serving others and proving to others that he was there for them. So he was in the likeness of humanity. He was the same as us but different in that he did not have a sin nature. And when he had come as a man, understand that this is saying Jesus came in literal, physical flesh. He wasn't some sort of apparition. He wasn't some sort of ghost. He wasn't some sort of like pseudo-human. He was a man. John 1.14, the apostle John, who walked with Jesus said this, the word 
the Spirit of God, the, the, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh and dwelled among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came in the flesh, gave up all of the rights and privileges of equality with God in order to become a servant who walked in the flesh for you and I. And then it says this, as if it wasn't enough that the second person of the the Trinity didn't fight for his own rights, didn't fight to be equal with the Father, but assumed a role of submission and service and fleshiness, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. As if giving up all of the riches wasn't enough, he humbled himself by dying for you and I on a cross. And this is not some small, insignificant thing. For, for the eternal God to take on flesh and then experience the suffering of death on our behalf. It's huge. And not just any death, but death on a cross. In, in, in Roman culture, the cross was frowned upon. It was looked at as the, the, the way that non-Roman, pagan, barbaric criminals died for murder and rebellion. In Jewish culture, the view was that anyone who was hung on a tree was under God's curse. And that comes straight from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. That to be crucified, to be hung on a tree, was the most shameful of deaths in both Jewish and Gentile cultures. And yet Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a shameful, looked down upon instrument of torture perfected by the Roman Empire. Who humbled Jesus? Who put him in this position? Who marched him to his death? Himself. He chose it to serve you. He chose it to redeem you. He was not forced. He was not coerced. He wasn't like, oh, Dad, are you sure? But he humbled himself for you and died. Now, What is the result of this humbling? What is the result of this giving of himself? For this reason, Christ's humility, Christ's sacrifice for others. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So what's the reason that Jesus is exalted? Because of his humility. Because of his self-sacrifice. Because he willingly gave himself and rejected, gave up all of the rights and privileges of being divine in order to walk this earth and die for you and I. And for that very reason, that act of humility and sacrifice, the Father highly exalted him. The the Greek here, it it actually means super-exalted. Uh, he, he, it's not just like exalted. It's not just like lifted him up, but like it's, you know, it's that Sunday, 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 Jesus is super exalted. I mean, it's just amazing. The father is, is, is just lifting him up above all others and saying that Jesus is the one. And not because he fought for his privileges, not because he showed his power by destroying or crushing but instead because he gave it all up for the sake of others. He 
is exalted. So he is our example. He is the one we're supposed to be following after. And, and it says that God gave him, the Father gave him the name that is above every name. Now there is some discussion, what is the name that God gave him? Well, we look and, and it, it says this, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So his name was already Jesus. So it's not that the Father gave him the name Jesus, but instead it is this statement that comes closer to the end of verse 11. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, this, uh, this is an interesting phrase because it, it really is, there's going to come a point where every person who's ever existed and every created being will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the Greek, that little that is, essentially serves as um, quotation marks for the statement that follows. So we, we can say, every tongue will confess, quote, Jesus Christ is Lord. Now this one phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord, is so rich. It is so full. Because it's not just some sort of, of little statement about, oh, you know, Jesus was a good guy. Sorry, wrong slide. But it is instead an understanding that Jesus, whose name literally means the Lord saves, is the name of the incarnate man who was God. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the one that God sent to serve and to save all of mankind. He is Lord. And a lot of us, we get this mindset that the word Lord just means boss. That Jesus Christ, he's the boss of the world or even king. But in context of the whole Bible, this word Lord should, we should understand it as Yahweh. The name of the one true God. Because how this works is the word is kurios in, in the Greek. And the word kurios in the Greek was used to translate the word Adonai from Hebrew, which means Lord. But Adonai in Hebrew served as the replacement name from God, for God because the Jews refused to say Yahweh. They refused to pronounce the, the, the name of God because it was so holy, it was so sacred. So every time that it was time to talk about God, Yahweh, they would use Adonai. And then translated from Hebrew to Greek, Adonai means kurios, Greek to English, it's Lord. Essentially what, what Paul is helping us to understand is that the Father is saying that Jesus is the God of creation and the Old Testament, and everything you've ever known about God is reflected in Christ. It's represented in Him. He is Yahweh. So there's this clear revelation that it was, it was always God who was at work. In the plans of the Father, in the sacrifice of the Son, in the gifting and filling of the Spirit, it's always been God at work. And there'll come a day where everyone will be kneeling down and declaring this to be true. Some out of joy. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord, Yahweh, God and Savior, when this day comes that Paul talks about, where every knee bows and every tongue confesses, this will be a day of celebration for you. If you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never trusted Him for salvation, you've never submitted to Him as your God, when this day arrives, it will be a day of mourning for you and a statement of defeat. Because it will be the final thing that you will say before you will be cast out of God's presence forever into what Revelation says is a lake of fire. Other words we've used to describe it, hell, outer darkness. Everyone will confess Jesus is God. 
Some will celebrate when that day comes, and some that will be a heartbreaking confession of realizing their whole life they had denied the truth. I hope that for all of us, as we are not on that side of those who will be kneeling before Jesus and calling him God as an act of weeping and mourning because we denied it our whole life, but instead one of celebration because we got, get to finally see it come to pass in its totality and we had lived it our whole life together. This passage, Romans 10, 9, we use it a lot for, for salvation. Hopefully this idea of understanding the word Lord as Yahweh brings some new light as you read your New Testament. Because it says this in, in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And a lot of times we've thought in the past, well, Jesus is my boss. I'll do what he says. What, what, what Paul's really saying, is Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is the God of the New Testament. Jesus is God. Jesus is the God of creation. He's the God that holds me together. He's the God of my salvation. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is the one who's been in front of the story and inside of the story, and he'll be at the end of the story. In fact, the whole story is about him. Jesus is Yahweh. Confess that with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, implying you understand that he died for your sins and rose again to prove that he is the sacrifice that can redeem you, you will be saved. And so when when we read through all of this and, and we see it all in total, that Jesus, Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the being of a servant, taking on the the flesh of humanity. And when he was a, a human, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death in the most despicable and, and, and rejected way ever, death on a cross. And because Jesus gave so much for all of us, for this reason, God lifted him up, super exalted him, and gave him the name that is above every name, Lord, Yahweh, God. And all of this is to the glory of God the Father. So when Paul tells us to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, it's really easy to say, well, Jesus was a nice guy, and Jesus, he, he helped others, and he fed the, the hungry, and he served the poor, and you know, he brought, brought redemption to people, so let's just be nice people. It's not at all what we've been called to, just to be nice people. Humility, like Christ, is beginning the practice of foregoing what is deserved in your life when you consider your relationship, especially with other believers. Now, I'm going to encourage you again, this practice of humility, the first and most important place for us to practice it is at home. As we interact with our children, as we interact with our spouses, even as adults, as we interact with our older and aging parents or aging parents, as you interact with your adult children, this kind of humility should first be practiced in our families and at home. And then we should bring it to church. And when we practice it at church, we get even better at it. And then we start taking it into the workplace. We start taking it into our community. And people start going and and looking at us and going, there's something different about you. Yeah, I know. I got Jesus. It's pretty cool. But real humility like Christ begins with the practice of foregoing what is deserved. How many times do we walk into a room and say, but I deserve this. I deserve to be treated with respect. I deserve for my family to listen to what I say. I work hard. I deserve for my spouse to to meet my needs because I've done things for them. I've got a list. Would you like me to show you? When we walk in with that attitude, 
It only causes destruction, and it's not humility like Christ. When we walk into church and say, I wish Sunday school was longer, I wish the sermon was shorter, I wish the music was louder or not as loud, I wish the chairs were red, not green, I wish there was twice as much padding, I wish it was five degrees warmer or ten degrees cooler. When we walk in the room and say, I wish we did ministry the way I wish it was, should be done, not the way that I do to serve others, then, then we, we, we begin to not practice humility like Christ, but instead we begin to destroy the unity of the body. Humility means to forego what's deserved, and then to begin to assume that which is lesser and sometimes even undeserved. On the day of his crucifixion, Jesus did not deserve the cross. He did not deserve to die for you. You deserve to die. What's the sign of his humility? He assumed your suffering in order to give you his joy. Do we do that for one another here in the church? Do we do it for each other at home? Little things, like giving up the remote. <laughs> that could be where you start. By not freaking out about the toothpaste. Putting the toilet seat up. Putting the toilet seat down however it works, whatever the argument is in your house, you do what the other dongs, longs for. Kids, clean your room. There's only a few kids in here, but most of them are downstairs. Don't worry, we've recorded this. You can play that little part for your kids later. Do the dishes without being asked. Serve one another. Fill up each other's gas tanks instead of running them all the way down to E. Isn't that the worst? You get in a vehicle and the light's on. And you're just like, who did this? I know exactly who did it. But I'm just going to pretend like I don't. And then we move into bigger things. And we learn how to be humble. And we learn how to forgo what we deserve, rightfully. We learn to assume the lesser and the undeserved for the sake of others. And we begin to look like Jesus. And why do we do this? We do this because it's what's right. It's what we've been commanded to do. But here's the promise that's given to us in Scripture. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourselves in service to one another. Humble yourselves. And you, like Jesus, will be lifted up. Now, the exaltation will not be the same as that of Christ. Only one person can have the name above all names but your exaltation will be eternal life. No more sickness. No more death. You will be exalted. But we as believers should be living a lifestyle of humility and giving of ourselves and adopting the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who gave up all of the rights and privileges of heaven, assumed flesh, and then gave his life for us, how much more can we not just simply serve one another in humility and give of ourselves and lift each other up and pay the prices that are required for the church to be unified and growing? Because all of this is just living out what Paul has taught us. For me, to live is Christ. To live a life of humility is easy because everything in front of me is gravy, right? I mean, give it all today, die tomorrow, and then you've got eternity. How awesome is that? All of these light and momentary troubles are nothing in comparison to the glory that awaits all of us who live for Christ and understand that death can be gained. This morning, I want to encourage you, if you've never trusted on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you've got questions, I want you to be amongst those who celebrate that day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not those who regret a life of rejecting him when that day arrives. So if you've never trusted him, or you don't understand what it means to be saved, 
would you come talk to me or grab somebody else that you know and trust and say, how, how do I trust Jesus? How do I, how do I know I'm saved? How do I know that the cross applies to me? And then for those of you who are saved, those of you who do know Jesus, in your home life, in your church life, begin to adopt the same attitude as your Savior, who gave it all up for the sake of others. What is that going to look like for you? It's going to be different in application for all of us. But ultimately, it should bring all of us to the point where we are willing to give whatever it costs for the sake of one another and the sake of the gospel. Like the Apostle Paul, like our Savior Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for this time. We thank you for the privilege of gathering together and studying your word. Pray that uh, this morning, if anyone is struggling with understanding where they stand with you, Lord Jesus, that you would make salvation clear to them, that you would make the story of the gospel, the truth of it in their life, real to them. For those of us who've already believed on you, Jesus, would you convict us? Holy Spirit, would you lay heavy on our hearts to show us the areas where we're prideful, to show us the areas where we're more like Adam and Eve grasping for equality than we are like you, Lord Jesus, letting go of it for the sake of others. Holy Spirit, reveal to us where we're selfish. Reveal to us where we're self-centered and help us to let go of those areas and begin to serve others joyfully. Lord Jesus, we long to be like you. Convict us, teach us, and guide us that we will become more like you, knowing that one day we'll see you face to face and have the privilege of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. In your name we pray, Jesus, and may we follow your example. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.
So the prayer and the hope for all of us is that we will learn to have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And in your reactions and interactions, especially with other believers this week, but don't limit it to that. Be nice to the cashier too. How might you give up the rights and privileges that are yours rightfully and assume trouble and trauma that isn't yours for the sake of others? and live like Jesus. So many opportunities this Christmas season. Many of you helped out with Operation Christmas Child Boxes. Those will go out tomorrow. We'll deliver those out to uh, the collection point. There's also going to be other opportunities. If you're interested in a, an Advent, how to serve, how to help out, there are some forms in the back that give a 24 days of Advent, how you can collect dry goods, canned goods to submit to a local uh, food bank, which we collect stuff here to take in. So lots of opportunities. Look for ways how you can humbly serve to the glory of God and the good of others. God bless you all. Kind of a shortened week on events and stuff because of Thanksgiving. So I know we've got Monday night Bible study. Ladies are not meeting. Youth group is not meeting. But we will, of course, have Sunday Bible school next Sunday morning and services as we gather together. So love you guys. Have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus as you live this week.